Thank you, Levon. Hi, my name is Pat, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And if you'll bear with me, I get kind of nervous doing this, and I always seem to need to spend a few minutes just sort of uh, rattling around. Um, when she brought me these, these are beautiful talents. This lady has talent. When she brought me these and called them Minnesota flowers, I really felt confused because I we drove here from the airport, and I didn't see any flowers. <laughs> She said they're silk, and in my naive way of believing everything anybody tells me, I thought, my God, they grow right up out of the ground made of silk. And then I said, I have a terrible tendency to believe everything anybody says. And over the years, that's gotten me into a little bit of trouble. <clears throat> it's not the smartest thing to do to marry an alcoholic when you have a tendency to believe everything everybody says. <laughs> you know, I was sitting here earlier, because Cliff and I get to, to do a little traveling, and we're so grateful for that. I'll tell you, if I had had any idea how much fun and how many wonderful people I'd meet and how much traveling I'd get to do, because all his drinking, I sure would have enjoyed it more. (laughs) (laughs) But people are different everywhere. We're all the same, of course. We all know that about each other, but we're kind of different the way we do things. And in California, we applaud everybody. I mean, you just sneeze and everybody applauds. That's pretty true. We're kind of demonstrative, and, and, you know, they they tell us we're a little nutty. I'm not too sure about that, but, I mean, I've already met a few of the nutty ones right here in Minnesota. Today. <laughs> We've only been here a few hours, but I won't point any fingers. You, you probably kind of have an idea who I'm talking about. Already. But, uh, so, I remembered, I reminded him one time, um, a few years ago, when we go to different meetings, we never quite know how people do things, like, and I su- suggest that we do this, like, when I was young and my grandmother would, would tell me if I was going to go to a dinner and at the friend's house, and I wasn't sure maybe how to use the right forks or those kinds of things. Just watch what everybody else does. So that's what we do. And we watch some people hold hands when they say the serenity prayer. Some people stand up. Some people sit down. Some people don't say the serenity prayer. Some people say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, forever and ever. The closer you get to Canada, the more you have to hear forever and ever. Down in down in our area, they leave off the other ever. And uh, and it really, it gets, it, what? And yeah, we say it's so slow out there. We do everything else fast, but we say the Lord's Prayer, we drag it, you know, and it's really kind of fun, and it's it's a way to start feeling like part of. But I want to tell you, I am I I'm not feeling so nervous right now. Um, I I don't think I'm ever going to get used to the wonderful, exciting coincidences. I put that in quotes that happen in this program, because you know somebody told me a coincidence is nothing more than than a minor miracle. Well, God has chosen to remain anonymous, but I sat down here next to this lady named Jan, and uh, we introduced ourselves to each other, and I find out that her son just recently graduated from uh, Luke's camp in a station at Camp Pendleton, which is like three miles from where I live, California, and that's just kind of fun, you know. She was just, you know, I said, oh, you just visited our small town. She said, small town? Well, it's small to us because the towns out there aren't towns. They're big. Ours is, I think there's 70 or 80,000. I don't know how many live in Oceanside now, but... It's little by the standards where we live. I just love coming to a place where it's smaller. This is smaller to me. I just love it. Um, sometimes if things get so big out there that we get feeling like we haven't really met anybody. It's just a sea of people, and uh, it's just terrific to be here. I saw a familiar face at dinner and leaped up and interrupted while she was being served. Uh, Max, Maxine served with me in New York, and we were delegates together. And Boy, is that fun to come walking in and see somebody you know. Um, I want to thank the committee for inviting us. It's it's a special thrill to be here. Um, you'll notice I'm thanking you. My husband speaks tomorrow night. I always have mixed feelings about being the first one. Uh, 
you know, gives him the microphone last. Um, I always thank the committee to let you know that I'm the nice one of the two of us. <laughs> oh, somebody applauds. I like that. Um, it's, um, it gives me a chance to warn you a little bit about what you're going to get into tomorrow night. I want to tell you that he tells lies. <laughs> the first time I heard him give a talk, I think he'd been in the program a couple of years, and I went up to Los Angeles to hear him talk, and um, fortunately, was sitting next to my own on sponsor, and uh, after a few minutes, I turned to her, absolutely indignant, righteous indignation. The old nose was up in the eyes, and said, that man is lying. And she said to me, they all do. And, I, and you know, it wasn't so much that it was just that who cares, you know. And uh, over the years, that's been a few years ago. Over the years, I've had to painfully come to recognize that a few of the ways that I saw things might have been called a lie by somebody else, not by me, of course, but by somebody else. My mother called it embroidering. I have, I may do a little weeping up here tonight. I'll warn you about that. He's the crier of the family. You'll find that one. He cries all the time. But, you see, um, this is the first time I've been to Minnesota. It's going to happen to me. <laughs> He's not, and he knows why. Um, and my mother was born and raised in, or born, she wasn't raised, in Blueing Prairie, Minnesota. Um, I'm feeling very close to my roots. I've felt it all the way in the airplane, flying over... You know, the kind of feeling that, that I get to get now, that I'm in Al-Anon and can let those feelings just come on out. And not only come on out and look at them myself, but tell a whole room full of people I've never met before. <laughs> my goodness. Um, her, my mother's mother left Blooming Prairie, Minnesota when my mother was seven years old, way back at the beginning of the century, more or less. Um, and it was, she left with her two little daughters to leave an alcoholic husband. His name was Earl Johnson, and he was a butcher in Blooming Prairie, Minnesota. I never got to meet that grandpa, because he drank too much. I have a grandfather who's an alcoholic. I have a mother who was an alcoholic. I have a husband who's an alcoholic. I emphasize that one, because he kind of, his, his brand of alcoholism makes up for two or three, in my opinion. <laughs> I have a, a whole bunch of alcoholic cousins. Um, aunts, uncles, um, a few children are in training for the program, we think, a few of our children. My next door neighbor, my next door neighbor's drinking drives me up a wall. And my favorite dog like martinis. And I belong in Al-Anon. I also either have now people in my life or have had people in my, my life who've abused marijuana, LSD, Cocaine, alcohol, prescription drugs, codeine cough medicine, glue, whiteout, if you haven't had that experience, you know, what you use when you're typing something. Uh-huh. And uh, I belong in Al-Anon because the way I react, either reacted then or react now, the people in my life that choose to do those kind of things to themselves is what makes me okay or not okay. And if I don't keep coming to Al-Anon, I have a lot of proof that I'm not going to be okay if I want to stand up here and tell you about it. I never know for sure what I'm going to say. As I came up here, I chatted with Don for a minute, and he said, isn't it kind of fun? You you get up there and you think you've got this little plan, 
And then after it's all over, you said, oh, my God, I wonder what I talked about that for. It's really kind of an adventure for those of you who've tried it. And if you haven't, try it. I can sure feel the love in this room, I'll tell you. There's a lot of wonderful, friendly faces. I said to somebody at dinner, one nice thing about our program, you know, the more you screw up, the more everybody loves you. <laughs> Where else? <laughs> Where else? Huh? It's wonderful. Well, I, I'm supposed to tell you, I used to think I was supposed to say what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now, but it's not, that's not what the big book of AA says. The big book says what I used to be like, what happened and what I'm like now, and uh, I say that whenever I can remember what I just finished saying, because I spent a lot of years watching what it was like out there, looking at you. I was glad to hear the traditions read at this meeting. You don't always hear them read, and I also really enjoyed hearing Julie read the Allergene literature because I have a special place in my heart for allergies, which I hope I get to in my story. Um, but I always like to hear the traditions read, and everybody doesn't read them. We do. But sometimes they get misread. They're hard to read. You know, they got a lot of big words in them. You know, I, Cliff and I over the years have, have kind of collected the way people misread the traditions. And uh, if you notice, the Al-Anon, for those of you who are members of AA, are there some members of AA here? What a silly question. Of course. <laughs> As my friend in Texas, whose name is Blanche, says, uh, we want to thank you for sharing your program with us. You were so generous in sharing your disease. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Jen didn't make one single mistake, wasn't it? You, you're the one that read the traditions, yeah. Didn't make one single mistake, and uh, there are often mistakes are made. And now and on, there's a little, there are little differences if you listen. Some of them, like if, uh, we heard the traditions read one time by a newcomer to AA who that our leaders are but twisted servants. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I know. <laughs> Two of your twisted servants met us at the airport. <laughs> and, you know, just to show you what, we, what where your priorities lie in this program, driving from the airport to here, uh, we're talking about things, and Sharon said, uh, well, you know, we really don't have a lot of interesting things to see around here. Well, it was interesting to me just to look at what I was seeing, because I don't see that where I'm from. Just the, just the vastness of the land. And uh, so we kind of decided that probably the most exciting landmark would be where Sharon had had her accident when she was drinking back on the road between Grand Forks. And, you know. So she pointed it out. She was a little vague about where it was. She had a little fuzziness there about her memory. But, uh, God, I'm just going on about nothing here, aren't I? No, I know what I started to say. But in Al-Anon, we, do, we work the same steps, thank goodness. But our traditions do say a couple of different things, and one of them um, says, although a separate entity, the sixth tradition, we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and every once in a while somebody reads that wrong and says, although a separate enemy, we should always cooperate. <laughs> and you wonder how well that all on is, you know. So, and the one uh, where we add on the 11th tradition, um, we should guard with special care the anonymity of all AA members. And in one of our meetings one day, someone read, we should guard with special care the animosity of all AA members. <laughs> and that woman never knew she said that. She never knew. She didn't know what we were laughing about. Well, I was born in California. My parents were from the Midwest, but they were both pretty much grew up most of, most of their lives in California. And I told you I had an alcoholic mother, and that's true. But, you know, I want to tell you, she was one of the funniest, most exciting, fun ladies to be around I've ever known in my life. Um, mom's drinking didn't bother me much until I was about 16. At least I don't remember it bothering me. Uh, at the age, at, in my teen years, it, I reached that point, and there's many people in this room I know have experienced this, where I was being very careful about who I brought home 
with me after school. I was uh, going to my girlfriend's house and spending the night as often as possible. And I was doing those kinds of things that kids start doing when things are very confusing and difficult at home and when you can't know for sure what shape your mom's going to be in when you get home. And mom was kind of a quiet drunk. She was a lot of fun. Very funny lady. Very witty. She did quite a bit of writing and we've come across some of her writing. She's been gone quite a few years, but uh, what a what a sad feeling I got when I read it because I thought, again, as we so often do in here, what a, what a waste of ter- terrific talent uh, with this alcoholism that took over and pretty much controlled her life eventually. I say mom's drinking didn't bother me very much when I was a kid because I don't remember it except that I did come up with a poem I had written to her when I was in the third grade, found it one time a few years ago, and um, it just was a really pretty bad Mother's Day poem is what it was. But it, the last couple of lines said, So I love you, Mother dear, even though you like your beer. <laughs> so I'm not too sure, you know, what was going on, but something had been going on. Uh, my dad had a terrific sense of responsibility. He felt, um, I remember the clearest memory I have of my dad was that he was responsible for that woman's drinking, and he was depressed most of the time. I'm reading a book written by a native Minnesotan, um, Lake Wobegon. What's his name? Garrison Keeler. Uh, just just reading it now, and he mentions a church called Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. That was a new one. And I feel like that's kind of the church I went to, you know, Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. And I learned that at my father's knee. He uh, was not an alcoholic himself, and he was a hardworking person who simply wanted to have his family be okay. Um, in my opinion, he died as a result of his reaction to my mother's drinking. Um some years after Cliff and I were married and living in Oceanside, and we had by this time five children, I want to tell you that because sometimes I forget them. I mentioned it early, and I did forget them a little bit back then, too. Got a little obsessed with somebody else. But um, my dad had had another heart attack. He had a couple before. And the doctor called me and said, uh, you better get up here. They lived up near San Francisco, and we lived down near San Diego. And it's a 500-mile flight, and... Um, my sister was out of the country, and that's the only other person in the family. And I said, well, what? And he said, I don't know if your dad's going to make it through this. So I flew up there filled with conflict because I left a drunk husband and five children from the ages of 12 on down at that time and got on an airplane and flew up there to walk into a hospital room, which scared me because at that time, it was the first time I'd seen one of those monitors. I'm going back about 20 years now, those heart monitors that jump up and down. And I walked over to him, and he was terribly um, upset when he saw me. What are you doing here? And I thought he was upset because my being there would indicate that he was in bad shape. So to reassure him, I said, I needed to get away from home for a while, and um, I wanted to come up and see you. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, what are you doing here at the hospital? You need to be home with your mother. She's drinking. The man was dying, and all he could think of was that somebody needed to be with mother because she was drinking and by this time her drinking had progressed to the point where uh, she was periodic but it was pretty well destroying her health um, how nice if he could have had Al-Anon but he didn't uh, that's the first tragedy in my life that I, that I know of that was a direct result of alcoholism in my opinion he didn't know what to do about that um, but I did grow up happy. I'll tell you, I never doubted that I was loved. One piece of our literature says that we sometimes feel unwanted, unloved, and alone. It's in um, something called understanding ourselves. I certainly learned 
how to feel unwanted and unloved and alone before I got to Al-Anon. I certainly experienced that. But as I grew up, I had a good time. I lived in a small town. Everybody loved me. My sister gave me a little trouble. She was a few years older than I. Had a grandmother that loved me. Um, I always knew that I would be taken care of. Um, I knew that even though I made mistakes, I might get scolded, but that I wouldn't uh, be thought less of. And it was a nice way to grow up. I was a good girl. I behaved myself. I followed the rules. Then I went to college and looked around me a little bit. Now, I happened to attend college right at the end of World War II. That tells you how old I am, if anybody cares about those kinds of things. And uh, somebody, one of the kids I work with, asked me the other day, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 50 and 50-ish and running out of of ishes. And uh, (laughs) it fascinated him. He had to know more. Well, I'll tell you, I went all 12 miles away to San Jose State University. And because I grew up in a little town called Los Gatos, California, which is not far from San Francisco. And I mean, I mean, I couldn't have ordered anything better. Here I was. I moved away from home. The drinking was one of the reasons, but partly because it was time. And here you see were all these guys that had just come out of the service. And there were about eight GIs, or eight guys for every gal. And they were war heroes. Well, at least they told me they were war heroes. <laughs> I told you I had a little trouble believing people. And I had been raised to be patriotic. And it seemed to me that I owed them a good time. <laughs> it was the least I could do. They had been risking their lives over there all those years. So, you see, I started in having fun. Now, my parents didn't have money, so I had to work. When I went to school, we didn't have uh, loans available at that time. So I had to do these three things. I needed to go to school, I needed to work, and I needed to have fun. I mean fun. I finally decided that all those rules that I'd been following were not necessarily that important. And I began to break a few. And boy, did I love the parties. And I loved the drinking. And I loved the partying. And I liked the kind of people that went to parties. And I joined a sorority. And I started out having a ball. And for three years, I did. Now, the only problem that I was having had to do with the fact that I didn't always make it to class. Something I had to give. I had to work. I certainly owed it, as I told you, to all those patriotic, to all those men that had been defending me. And that took a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy. And uh, and I didn't always make it to class. So you, so my academic um, record was a little up and down. And eventually, after three years of school, decided they didn't need me anymore, and they let me know that. Um, it, I was in Al-Anon a few years before I was it, was found myself saying uh, I flunked out of college. I used to say I dropped out of college. <laughs> Interesting, right? And I also remembered after a few years in Al-Anon, what I wrote on my petition to the Dean of Students to try to talk them into letting me back, what I wrote on that, which didn't work, was the reason I was having so much trouble with school, with my grades, was that I had this mother who drank too much, and it worried me so that I couldn't concentrate on my studies. Now, Mom was 12 miles away. I didn't bother to see her more than once a month, and, and I most certainly didn't phone her any more than I could help at that point. And isn't that interesting? The first time I knowingly remember using an alcoholic to excuse my behavior. And boy, I was kind of a blow when I remember that. It's kind of embarrassing to think it's probably still up there somewhere at San Jose State. And I, you know, that makes me a little nervous, but thank goodness in this program, anytime I've had to remember one of those awful things about myself, there have been lots of you Al-Anons around to help me through that. <laughs> because sometimes remembering things is kind of painful. However, I was, I really felt terrible about myself when I flunked out of college. I'd been a good student in high school and I was certainly capable of being a good student and I hadn't been. And I was at a very low point in my life. I felt I had probably less self-esteem than I remembered having. 
And at that time, I crossed, more or less at that time, crossed paths with this particular college student, this particular ex-sailor, who seemed to have a wonderful time in life. I mean, he's one of the funniest people I'd ever met. And I told you I loved humor. I loved being around a funny mom. Gosh, he was funny. First time I saw him, he wasn't so funny. He was at a party, and he was drunk. <laughs> Big surprise. Breaking glasses and saying four-letter words that we didn't say much in those days. And instead of being proper and dignified and leaving and not staying around anybody that talked that way, I just felt this kind of thrill of excitement. <laughs> oh, God, that's, that's, that's glamorous. Listen, I didn't even know what some of them meant. That is really true. That is really true. Cliff and I get hysterical every once in a while about arguing about what the word SH, you know, meant. I really thought it meant something different than it meant. And I decided to convince him that he was wrong. You know, two years in the Navy, and I'm telling him what that means. You know. But that's, I was really naive, but it was exciting and thrilling, and the parties were fun. And this guy was funny. Well, he wasn't funny that night, but I did run into him a few more times, and, and he just was one of the funniest people I'd ever been around. And I kind of thought, you know, this has got this would be a fun guy to hang out with. There's no question about that. And we just kind of grabbed hold of each other at a time when both of us were kind of lost. He was going to graduate from college. Uh, he didn't know what he was going to do. He was getting his bachelor's degree in, in drama. He was going to be a, a world-famous actor. You may pick up on a little bit of that when you see him. And uh, as some of you know, that doesn't just kind of happen. And I, of course, didn't even have my degree, and we just kind of held hands. And now he was looking for a mother. I realize that today. And I was looking for somebody to take care of me. But we forgot to discuss that. Uh, he also did have this drinking problem, and I knew that. I can't say like some Alanons get to say. But gee, they married this person, and a few years later, this little problem developed, and then it got worse, and much to their amazement, they had married a person with a drinking problem. I can't say that. And, you know, that's just too big a lie to say that. Uh, I mean, there was no question this man had, and he wasn't a quiet little drunk that went to sleep in the corner like my mother used to. He was loud and noticeable. And I became quickly obsessed with trying to control the amount he drank and the way he behaved. I basically got obsessed with two things. My disease is getting obsessed with other people. I sometimes call myself a recovering helpaholic. <laughs> Don't get too close to me, I'll help you. And in this particular case, the um, behavior that went with the drinking, well, not necessarily with the drinking, he didn't restrict it to that all the time, but was something I felt I could help him with. I'd been a psychology major, big surprise. Any room with Al-Anon's in it has got a few psych majors, a few nurses, a few teachers. But I got obsessed with this man's drinking. I also became obsessed with where he went to the bathroom. <laughs> I was raised in a nice family. And you just are supposed to go in that little room, you know, where the door closes. And he'd have a few beers or a few somethings, and it just didn't matter to him where he went. And you know, I just, when I looked at the energy I used up trying to find him and where he might be performing this. I mean, when nature called, he just answered. That was all there was to it. Even in college, this was true. Even before we were married, this was true. We'd all be coming home from a party and stop at a gas station to use their facilities, and everybody else would go use their facilities, and he'd use the gas pump. And uh, he's been a lot better since he's been sober about that. I want to say that about him. But that became an obsession of mine. Uh, 
That continued. Uh, sometimes he'd forget in the night where he was and wander out into the front yard or one of the kids' closets or, you know, or well, I've got one potted plant that just didn't make it. <laughs> but then the children started arriving. Uh, you see, one of the things Cliff was that I wasn't was that he was a Catholic. That was one of the things that was uh, frowned on by my family. They were, as a whole, a pretty uh, loving family that pretty much took people as they came along. But, my God, a Catholic. Well, I'd married one. He was an Irish Catholic. That's cultural shock when you marry somebody like that. I met two people I'd never known. I met a person named St. Patrick, and I met somebody named John Barleycorn, who was present at everything. Funerals, births, baptisms. Automobile accidents, um, the flowers bloomed that day, whatever they drank. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. But uh, this man, because he was Catholic, well, he kind of half fooled around with the church, but he decided to go back and be a good Catholic. He may decide to talk about that tomorrow. That's what was one of his ways to try to find the answers he was looking for. Um, so I decided, well, I'll join the church, and that'll keep him from drinking too much. Well, what it gave us is five kids. <laughs> And if any of you have that in mind, don't bother, unless you want five kids or more. That was the result of my joining the Catholic Church. He um, did spend six, seven years, we did, together in the uh, Hollywood, Los Angeles area while he made his attempt at becoming a star of stage, screen, and TV. And they just didn't appreciate his sensitivity and his talent, but he is tremendously talented, and I fully agree with him, they're crazy. But he had gotten a teaching credential along the line. We'd kind of, oh, we. I had encouraged him to go back to school and get that while I worked and put him through. So he got that graduate teaching credential, and uh, thank God he had me. Can you imagine what he would have done without me if I hadn't been there to help him in that direction? So he decided to use that credential and became a school teacher. Um, my, my whole life, up until the time the kids started arriving, had been one of... Um, independence on my part. I was taught to be independent by my parents. I went to work at the age of 12. I always earned my own way. I knew uh, how to take care of myself well. I didn't uh, expect other people to do that for me, perhaps to a fault. I don't know. Raised just at the end of the Depression when people uh, did that a lot. And um, I didn't, I'd never experienced the feelings of being trapped and unable to take care of myself. And that's what started happening to me. And I want to tell you now, because I'm not here to take my husband's inventory. You know that I didn't get into Al-Anon because I tiptoed through the tulips one day and decided to walk through these golden doors. You didn't do that either to get here. You got here through pain. And it's enough to tell you that I've no doubt experienced what many of us have. Thank God today we could see that as a result of the disease of alcoholism and not as a personal attack on his part towards me. But I, like many of us, went into labor in a place where I knew nobody and had no husband available to get me to the hospital that day. Uh, he made it, actually, the next day. But, the, you know, I also have been to funerals for family members that I loved very much with a with a husband that was drunk and trying to hide him. I have been through the kinds of things that, that we all have, and I, and I say it so that if there's any new members of Ellen on here or any people that don't, that maybe need to hear that to remind myself that I came through pain. Because I tend to just look back and laugh at a lot of it. Uh, by the time I got to Al-Anon, I wasn't laughing very much. Um, neither was Cliff. Neither were those five children. The feeling of being trapped and unable to take care of myself scared me to death. Now, meanwhile, his disease was progressing. 
And um, while he always worked, I also did not experience many of the things that people in Al-Anon rooms have experienced. Uh, Cliff, from the time I've known him, never went to jail, never got arrested for drunk driving, never went to a hospital because of anything connected with his drinking, never lost a job. We never had our utilities turned off. Um, those things didn't happen to us. But I reached the bottom inside me based on the conditions inside that home that didn't have anything to do with all those other things. And I know that today. Um, I just got more and more and more scared. But I was a responsible person, you see, so I decided even though these five kids arrived and I felt trapped that I could still earn some money and the way I would do it would be to give piano lessons. I'd been taught to do that and I knew how to do that and I could do that at home and that got kind of important because... See, I figured I had all these people to watch, and the kids were growing up, and they weren't behaving the way they were supposed to. I don't know if any of you have kids that didn't do that. I mean, they just didn't shape up always. And I had a terrible time with with um, my anger at him because, you see, he teaches high school, and he teaches the brightest kids in the school. He teaches debaters. And he spent hours and hours and hours, and you'll probably talk about that, with these kids and this, this debate team, and, and he, he would be there all the time giving him his best, and he would come home, and our kids would get the worst of him. And I had so big a resentment about that. And so, you see, I would say, well, our kids would behave better and they would get better grades and they would do things better if they had the kind of home that all those kids he teaches have. Well, now, today, I know fully well that a lot of those kids had terrible homes. The point was I had a place to blame it. I had some place to put it besides looking at me. So I started giving piano lessons. Now, my problem with that was that um, a piano studio is supposed to be a dignified kind of thing. And uh, uh, by this time, as I say, my kids were behaving in ways that were slightly embarrassing. They were teenagers. Well, I started giving piano lessons before then, but I developed this dignified piano studio in our living room. Um, our house, my mother came to live with us. I forgot to mention that. Clifford invited her. <laughs> After my father died, they loved each other very much, Cliff and my mother. Today, I'm grateful for that. They I had a few things in common, like margaritas. <laughs> They burned three of my blenders up one afternoon, getting them on there wrong. But my sense of responsibility just grew and grew and grew, and I just knew that if I got busy enough and worked hard enough and kept track of everybody carefully enough, I could fix it. I would make it all okay. You see, I thought the answers came from talking about the problem and then everybody following my direction. Oh, some of you may notice that I have a tent. You can tell, can't you, that I like to talk. I talk fast. I forgot to mention that. I'm sorry if I talk fast. I'm not going to slow down for you. Because I tried that a few times, and I lost track of what I was saying. My mother told me that the rest of the world was all on 33 and a third, and I was on 78. And I don't know how to do anything about that, except just ask you to please try to listen fast. If I get to going too fast, that's just me. But I had this busy household. And I, meanwhile, got very busy in our community, because you see, I've been raised to do that, to be part of. And I was fixing the girls' club. I was on the board of directors of the girls' club, and I was involved in a couple of political committees, certainly keeping my eye on that school board. Part of the reasons for that was that Cliff used to attend the meetings drunk. But I was, you know, there. It was a good place to watch him. And um, and I had these children that always went to their little activities, and they went to them all. Believe me, I was super mom if they wanted to be in Little League. And Cliff made it very clear early on that he was not the kind of father that went to ball games or dance uh, rehearsals or whatever, and that, that I wasn't to expect that. I uh, never would accept that. He made it very clear. But you see, I spent a lot of years trying to convince him how much he would really enjoy himself if he'd go to watch 22 little seven-year-olds dressed as the sugar plum fairy. And uh, 
I never won that battle either. Frankly, I got a little bored with 22 little seven-year-olds watching the Sugar Plum Fairy. But I was supposed to like it, see, and I was supposed to follow the rules. My mom's drinking, she was periodic, and my mom's drinking had caused her to fall and break a hip. She didn't remember how that happened, but it was a broken hip, and she was in the process of supposedly going through some kind of therapy to walk properly again using a walker. And I was taking her dutifully to the, the physical therapist, and the physical therapist was giving her instructions on how to exercise to again walk without the walker. And the exercises would be something like, today you do five of these, and tomorrow you do six, and the next day seven. At the end of a month, you'll be doing 35 or whatever, or 40. And then, by then, your muscles will be strong enough, and you can walk again. And Mother was alcoholic. And Mother would come home from the therapist and do all 50 the first day. Does that sound like anybody you know? And she couldn't walk for three weeks. She couldn't even get around the walker. So I, like the dutiful daughter, would wait on her hand and foot and hey, talk about my problem. Who was insane? Um, our children were scaring us a lot by this time. Well, I don't know how much they were scaring Cliff by this time. He wasn't paying a lot of attention. Um, he was needing to numb himself more and more. Our oldest son, David, was working his way through Oceanside High School as a hashish salesman. Hashish is a fine form of marijuana, for those of you that don't know. We were a little proud of the quality that he chose to go into. And it made it a lot easier financially because God knows we always had money problems, always had money problems, and we didn't have to give him an allowance or buy him bicycles or any of those things, you know. Our oldest daughter was uh, uh, in a terrible, sick relationship, um, not going to go ahead with the kind of future she planned because a young man decided he didn't want her to do that. And an, an, our, our middle daughter was uh, absolutely filled with hate and at the age of 14 was climbing out the window and disappearing all night and uh, we didn't know where she was and um, and just uh, sitting in a corner full, filled with hate. Some of, we were talking about treatment centers at dinner tonight and I get a kick out of sometimes how the world out there studies all of us. You know, there's a lot of money in studying alcoholic families, government money. And I don't mean there's anything wrong in that. I guess, you know, we're interesting to people. But uh, <laughs> but they tend to label the, the kids. And, and it makes sense, some of it. Uh, they, and, and we had uh, one of each of those labels in our family. They call one kid a hero, and that's what our oldest daughter was. She was she would take care of everybody in that family, and she would make everybody okay. And, and they called some kids scapegoats, and we had two of those, our marijuana salesman and our 14-year-old daughter that hated the world. And, and families often have a mascot. And ours was our son, Chris, who was at the time we got in this program, was about 10. And he was, he's, still, he's one of the funniest kids you ever saw in your life, still can be when he's <clears throat> sober. And um, he, he would frantically be trying to cheer everybody up. And, and they talk about the lost child in an alcoholic family, and our youngest was that. And um, in our case, we had a mother-in-law, a grandma that I don't know what they called her in the books, but uh, she was a character, but uh, giving us a little trouble. And I was trying to help all this bunch. And I would sit up in the middle of the night, uh, wide awake in bed, smelling vodka next to me, uh, while he slept just fine, and um, trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do with all these people? I helped my neighbors a lot. I saw to it that they got their morning started well by dropping in and having coffee with them and asking them if there's any little bits of wisdom I could drop on their doorsteps that morning. And they got real used to that. And uh, I, I liked that. I liked that a lot. Um, it, it just that I was getting kind of tired. 
for one thing, I was a, a varsity martyr. I'm a member of the varsity martyr team. Does anybody here qualify? <laughs> if you don't, then you don't belong in Al-Anon. I mean, I think a real good varsity martyr, if you're a woman, knows how to hang the ironing in the doorways all through the house so that nobody can get through them without noticing how much work you've been doing. <laughs> That's the flag of Al-Anon, in my opinion, ironing in the doorways. Uh, men, uh, Al-Anons, I'm sure have some other tricks that, that uh, are just as worthwhile. I didn't, it's not that I got a lot of ironing done, folks, because I didn't. I just simply went in the closets and got the clothes out and hung them in the doorways to look like I'd been ironing. And my problem, you see, was that Cliff never noticed. And sometimes it's really hard if you're a martyr to get somebody to pay attention to how much you're working. It takes a lot of sighing. <sighs> you know, there's a certain way you can do that, that that really is effective, usually. Not for him. Didn't didn't save him. Didn't save him a bit. Uh, but it's very tiring. Um, I, I made a lot of self-sacrifices. Um, I didn't go to the dentist. That showed him, didn't it? The whole family. In fact, when our Al-Anon book called Blueprint for Progress came out, and I read it, and it said it there. It asks, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it asks questions. Uh, it's kind of a general way to look at a possible fourth step. And uh, it says, how long has it been since you've been to the dentist? And I said to myself, what a stupid thing to put in an Alan, a piece of Alan on literature. Until, until I tried to figure out how long it had been since I've been to the dentist. Uh, and those, you know, that was that was what I did. I really showed them. I went walked around with a with a, a screaming toothache a lot of the time because I uh, saw to it that any good martyr knows how to do this. I saw to it that the children asked for the things they really needed in his presence, and uh, hopefully with some degree of sob, a little sob in their voice, that all the other kids had a baseball mitt, and then I could answer, "Well, the money is gone." And uh, there isn't any. Money was a problem in our home, not only because there wasn't enough, but because it was a source of argument. Because, you see, I controlled it, I thought. We called it that. He brought his paycheck home every month, and I put it in the bank and wrote the checks. Now, he bought what he wanted to, he charged what he wanted to on the charge cards, and he never paid any attention whatsoever to what our bills were or whatever. But, you see, uh, I was in charge, and I thought that was real generous of him to let me be in charge of the money. Um I know today why I wanted to do that, because I didn't want him to know when I wanted to do a little manipulating. You know, you can do that. Today, I keep trying to get him to look at the checkbook, and he won't. I've got a secret, you know, but he's so used to not doing it. It doesn't bother me today. It's all right with me, but it's kind of funny. He's so bad at math that we're, we get in a lot less trouble that way, I'll tell you, for one thing. That part, you know, is just practical. Um, I, I felt guilty about everything. I felt guilty because I couldn't seem to figure out what would make this man happy. And that, you see, was going to answer our problems. If I could just know what would make him happy. My mom was not a hostile drunk. She wasn't a person who was angry very often. I'd never been around that kind of hostility. I just had to assume that I had caused it. Well, part of the reason I assumed that is because he told me that. You know, today I understand. He was so filled with pain himself so filled with guilt himself that he absolutely had to get it out somewhere. And I was an easy target, believe me. I was all ready for it. And I raced around wildly trying to figure out what would make him happy because then he wouldn't drink too much. Well, even when he got super happy, then you see, he celebrated and drank too much. And I got a little confused along the line. And once in a while I'd luck out and something would work right and he wouldn't get too drunk and I'd try to figure out what I'd done right. 
are wrong. Uh, my friend Winnie Eddie, I'm sure some of you know her, swears that you can put an alcoholic in a closet and lock him in for three days and they'll come out drunk. <laughs> and I swear to you, know, she's probably right. Uncanny. My own needs, my own need to keep that family intact, to keep myself looking okay in that small town, in the midst of where we lived, to look okay with other parents, to, to keep the secret that was what was really going on in our house. You see, I learned to do that in my hometown where I grew up because we had to keep my mother's drinking a secret. Um, that was absolutely vital. We didn't sit down and say it in those words, but we knew. We don't want anybody to know about this. Um, and I continued to keep everything a secret that I could. My problem is I told you that he was so darn noisy and loud, and he wasn't worried about who saw him or when, and, and it was just got to be a real, real problem keeping him a secret. Um, and these kids were behaving in the ways I've described. Someone in AA once told a story that was my... He expressed my feelings so clearly that I have since decided that it's my story. But I give credit. The man's name's Noel. He lives in El Centro, California. He talks about a man who was driving down the freeways of California with a one-ton pickup truck. And about every mile... This man would pull off to the side of the road, leap out of the truck with a baseball bat, and whack on the side of the panel as hard as he could, leap back in and drive another mile, jump out with a baseball bat, whack on the side of the truck, and he continues to do this. Well, he was being followed by a California Highway Patrolman who finally simply couldn't stand it anymore and pulled him over. And he said, you know, mister, I don't think you're breaking any laws. I just have to know, what are you doing? That fellow said, well, you see... I've got this one-ton pickup, but I've got two tons of parakeets in the back end, and I have to keep one ton in the air at all times. (laughs) 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 And by the time I got here, that's what I was doing, keeping one ton in the air. If I could just juggle that bunch around and just be there at the right time in the right place and figure what that guy was thinking and what that one was thinking and guess ahead of time what was going to make them all okay, read their minds, not just not ask them what was wrong, just read their minds and try to figure that out. Somehow I could keep one ton in the air at all times. This dog that I liked so much, had uh, he was a shaggy dog. His his name is Siesta. And I just saw somebody I know. <laughs> startled me, excuse me. And he uh, had been hit by a car and had broken his pelvic bone. Well, that meant that he couldn't hold his rear end up in the air in order to do what dogs do in the backyard. And somebody had to help him. Well, God knows no one else in that house was going to help him. (laughs) And I, it came to the point where I would stand in that living room. This son of ours who was selling marijuana also um, used LSD. And if any of you have experienced that or somebody that's watched somebody use that, um, people that do that tend to see peripheral lights flash by occasionally, even when they're not using it. And David would be sitting in our living room, uh, and he'd all of a sudden he'd go, what was that? And uh, and it was kind of scary, uh, to say the least. Um, I would stand and look at that bunch in our living room at night that God, this group of people that God had given me to take care of. This drunk husband, this drunk mother, these five children, the strange dog. <laughs> Always a few strange. I never could figure out how they got there or who they were or when they left, but they'd just be there. Um 
Friends of the kids were strange. Some of Cliff's friends were getting to be quite strange. My mother had made a few strange friends. <laughs> they just would be there. I learned, I just ended up cooking huge amounts of food. And, um, meanwhile, trying to give these, these dignified piano lessons. That got to be a real hassle, you see. What would happen was I would be teaching in the living room. Cliff is a surfer. You see, we live on the Pacific Ocean. Now, in our land, we call somebody who's a really bad surfer a Grammy. He's the oldest Grammy on the Pacific Coast. <laughs> and during Easter vacation, or when he could get away from school, he would drive down to Mexico, we're not far from Mexico, and go surfing off the coast of Baja, California. And he, one time, when he was there, purchased what to him was a beautiful Mexican art object. It was a wooden carving, uh, lovely wood, actually, of a man's hand with a particular finger extended. <laughs> And he decided that that was, represented his philosophy of, his, of life. And that that was his statement to the world. And by God, as the king of that household, he had a right to put that on my piano. <laughs> and I had reached a point in my progression that I didn't have the sense to realize that I didn't have to let him do that. <laughs> so you see, I had this. Uh, art object on my piano, and every day when it would be time for my piano lessons to start arriving, I would have to wildly go in there, get that thing, and hide it somewhere, go ahead with the piano lessons, and then get it back on the piano when I was finished so that when he came in that evening to watch TV on the, in the living room, he would not realize that I had moved it. It never occurred to me to throw the damn thing away. <laughs> never occurred to me. I mean, that makes sense, right? The day came when one of my students arrived at the door with his mother, and she asked if she could watched the lesson that day. I said, sure. Uh, she was the wife of the Baptist minister. <laughs> You're right. And as I'm teaching her child, I glanced at her and I noticed her line of vision wasn't on her child. It was at something behind the metronome. And I looked and sure enough, I had somehow missed it that day. And there it was, his statement to the world. I never saw that student again. Uh, that's Difficult to it's difficult to accomplish a dignified piano studio when you have somebody in your house that doesn't see dignity the same way you do. <laughs> and I would look at this family in the evening, and Cliff would be sitting there on his seventh or eighth martini after he had been giving his best <laughs> to other people's kids, and he would be talking to the TV newscaster even though the TV wasn't turned on. <laughs> he was probably commenting on what had been said the night before. That was about At that point, he was running, lagging about 24 hours in his reaction. And um, our oldest daughter, the hero, would be w running through the house trying to make everybody happy. What can I do to make your life okay? Our son, who was using LSD, David, would suddenly say, what was that? And Cliff would go, oh, my God, what was it? I don't know. <laughs> but my mother would lean forward in her helpful way and said, I will explain it to you all. And our 14-year-old daughter named Jan would just sit there glaring at the world. And if you got real close to her, she'd say, I hate you. Didn't matter who it was. And that 8- or 9- or 10-year-old boy, Chris, would be wildly trying to make us laugh. And he could do it. He would be standing maybe on a footstool singing like John McCormick loudly or trying to imitate uh, Mary Poppins in, in the umbrella. 
and going crazy, make, laugh, making us laugh. And Mary, our youngest, would be in what we called Mary's corner, our lost child. We always arranged our furniture so there was a diagonal with the couch, and she would put all her things in that corner, and that's where she would be. There was there was more than one night when we forgot that she was there, and she slept there all night. Nobody noticed. And I would look at this bunch, including those strange friends that would be there, and wonder what God had in mind for me, what I was supposed to be doing. So I would take the dog in the backyard and hold his rear end up. And, you know, that dog was a shaggy dog, and it never occurred to me to cut his hair off. Because I used to have to hold him under the faucet every time he'd do that and wash him off. And, you know, that's giving you an indication how sick I'd gotten by that time. Well, the day came when one child too many, one child showed too much fear. And I had not grown up with fear. I had not grown up being called the kinds of things that my children by this time were being called. Um, We, uh, our house didn't just turn out that way overnight. Over 20 years, I would make a little adjustment each time thinking, this will help. I can compromise on this. And I'd make another little adjustment and I'd think, this will help. I can compromise on this. And I did that and I did that and I was adjusted all the way out to here. I would never have jumped from here to here. I would have seen that. But it didn't happen that way. And I hear alcoholics often talk about their drinking that way. That little by little by little it crept up. They not each time, each little adjustment didn't seem that big. And by the end of the road it was awful. And that's what I had let happen. I wasn't drunk. What was my excuse for allowing that kind of behavior in my house? My own need to keep that family together, to follow the rules, to look okay to the world out there. And because I had that need to the point of sickness, uh, I allowed things to go on that uh, never should have. And that includes my children, and it wasn't all Cliff at all, you see. Uh, His drinking had control of him. I was obsessed with him and how I could make that household okay. And one child too many looked scared again, and I invited him to move out. And much to my amazement, he did. And he'd been in and out of AA for five years, and it never I never paid a lot of attention to it because he never stayed sober anyway. And somebody mentioned Alan, and I thought, well, what for? Uh, that's for sick people. <laughs> Me with my ironing in the doorway, you know, and my dog in the backyard and so on. But I... When he moved out, I realized how sick I had gotten. I realized how awful I'd been feeling. I realized I'd had a stomachache for five years because it went away. I began recognizing the kind of mother I wanted to be. I began knowing what it felt like to respond to the kids in the way that I felt was what a responsible mother would do. Um, there were times where I would grab a kid who'd done something bad and and one time I took David and slapped his face, and I didn't slap kids, slapped his face and screamed at him just just to prevent his dad from saying something harsh. His dad didn't slap his face and scream at him like that. Uh, I did that in order to keep the worst thing from happening, I thought. Um, and I had no idea how sick I'd gotten. When he moved out, uh, things got a lot better around there, it seemed. He went to AA for one thing. That was kind of weird. And this time he did it differently. He contacted a guy. He was going to meetings every night. This fellow that, that was kind of hauling him around, his name is Bill, and Don knows him. And he was a crazy little man. He used to pop in and out of our house. Cliff still wasn't living at home. And, and drop off little pieces of literature, things called the merry-go-round named Denial. What a weird thing to leave. <laughs> I think, what's that here for? Must be for kids. It's got a circus tent on the front. 
I uh, didn't go near it naturally. I loved Bill, though, because you see, he was talking to my husband in ways that I appreciated. Cliff used to say things like, I'm well-educated. I have these degrees. And Bill would say, a thermometer has degrees, too, and you know where they stick that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that felt so good. Cliff um, was different. Something had changed. And he moved back home, and we started. His sobriety really got started. And he was looking at things differently. I could see he was doing... I didn't trust it. I'd been hurt too many times by trusting a few months of sobriety. There was no way I was going to risk that much pain again. But when he wanted to move back in, it seemed like I should let him. The children managed to do a few little tricks right around then. David got arrested for selling what he'd been selling. And and even though in our town, in our area, it is uh, not a nice thing to announce. We Normally, they don't announce the name of 16-year-old kids that break the law. They don't put it in the newspaper. But in this case, every hour on the hour, our local radio station was saying that David Roach had been arrested for selling hashish and was in juvenile hall. Now, the reason this was happening, you see, was that the announcer, whose name is Al, and who has not found the program yet, and Cliff, had had a few cute little run-ins at board meetings. And Al, you see, had a chance to get even with Cliff, and he did it on the airwaves of Oceanside. And my secret about that kid was out. I mean, God really didn't have to go to all that trouble to teach me how not to keep secrets because the whole town of Oceanside got the word every hour on the hour and some people in the school district called that radio station because they were irate that a child's name would be being broadcast. So the next morning, Al broadcast that that had been happening. The school district people had been calling and they were angry because, you see, David's father, Cliff Roach, was a teacher <laughs> at Oceanside. Now, this great fear I had of, of secrets and that's the reason I want to tell this, is um, it, it had, I just had to deal with that. And, you know, I was so afraid people would know about the awfulness in our family. And not one person came to me and said, what a bad mother you are, or how terrible to have a child that's done this. Instead, I got phone calls and people coming by saying, how can I help? We're sorry that you're having to go through this. And, you know, that started me on a road of not keeping secrets. And then I got into Al-Anon. Now, I didn't come into Al-Anon because I needed it. I came in because Bill, as I told you, Cliff's sponsor, turned out to be a very wise man. Even though he was rather crude at times, he was very wise. What he said to me was, Pat, you know, I stuck my nose in an Al-Anon meeting the other night, and it looks to me like you could really help them. <laughs> and that's been 15 and a half years ago, and I haven't gotten far away since. Because the first night I walked into Al-Anon, you told me that this was for me. This was for me to be happy, and that I could be happy no matter what anybody else in my life was doing. And I started learning what you are able to teach. Now, I want to tell you, I didn't know I was learning it. I didn't know that what you were teaching me were the things I was going to need to learn later. A few months after I'd been coming to Eleanor and my mother, I knew she was going to do this was decided she needed to drink again. She was a periodic. There had been no booze in the house. Cliff had quit drinking. And I brought that up at an Al-Anon meeting, and you told me that I could, and I was not comfortable about that. What was I going to do? And you told me I had some choices, and you gave me some ideas. One of the ideas you gave me that I accepted was that I didn't have to help her get her booze. I always would do that. She would call it by another name. She would say, gee, let's let's have a couple of drinks. It's been a bad day. And I would go get a bottle. I mean, I would see to it that she, because I didn't know how to say no to her. 
I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. I'd been coming to Al-Anon. I'd been learning about this disease, and I'd been learning that I had to be honest and true to myself. And the choice I made one night was that she, when she did this, and she did, I knew she would, was to say to her mom, I can't do that. The doctor told me that if you go on another binge, you might die, and I can't be the one to put the bottle in your hand. I had never spoken that directly about that to my mother in our whole life together. Two days later, Mom took her own life, and she did that in my house, directly around the change in our relationship. I say that here not to be dramatic and not to scare people, but to be truthful about the disease of alcoholism. It kills people. It kills people one way or another. But because you had been giving me the gift that I didn't want from you, I was okay. I knew I was not responsible for her choice. I knew that what I had done was right for me. You began teaching me that if I could do what was right for me from my heart coming from love, it would be right for the people I love. That didn't seem very right, but today I recognize it as her business, not mine. Her choice, not mine. That's, that lesson, of course, has never left me. I'm sorry I had to learn it so young. I think it's kind of tough on... on um, Newcomers, I hope you don't have to experience it that way, but it, I've never stayed far from Al-Anon because I never know what I'm going to hear today that I'm going to need tomorrow. They talk about it in a lot of ways. We call it buying insurance. Uh, you know, you hear expressions about coming to meetings even when you don't feel like it. I never know what I'm going to hear. I wasn't real thrilled with a lot of things you were telling me to do, like when you said you got to work those 12 steps too, and I said, why? Well, because you've been participating in this disease, and this man has had an illness, and and to walk around with hate and resentment isn't going to accomplish a thing. It, it, he is not at fault for having been an alcoholic. And I began recognizing and getting some compassion. Um, the tenth step was the first step I knowingly worked. You see, what had happened was my sponsor was saying to me, you're going to have to start apologizing to Cliff for the way you're talking to him during those arguments. And I said, what arguments? What do you know about those? Well, what's Cliff been telling you? She says, not a thing, honey. <laughs> I know what's going on in your house, which always has mystified me. How did she know what was going on in my house? The thing is, she was right on. We would have arguments, and I was saying cruel and terrible things to that man that had nothing to do with what we were arguing about. I had so much resentment and hate in me, and he, meanwhile, was trying to work a program and trying to not do that. And I was walking away from those things feeling guiltier and guiltier and feeling worse about myself. And I knew what she meant. I knew. And she said, that's for you. That's not for him. I didn't want to apologize to him. I'd been apologizing to him for 20 years. It was time for me to stop that stuff. But she said, that isn't for him. That's for you. And you just apologize for your part in it. You don't have to worry about the part he played. That's up to him and his program and his sponsor. So I did it. I got gathered all my courage. And I walked up to Cliff one time after these arguments. And I said, Cliff, I want to apologize to you for the way I reacted to your childish and immature outburst. <laughs> Isn't it nice to be in a room full of people where you could admit something like that and they all love you? My goodness, how embarrassing that would be out in the world to tell somebody that. I started recognizing where all that guilt was coming from. Um, I thought I was feeling guilty because I couldn't ever figure out the things that would make him happy. Uh, what I was feeling guilty about is the way I'd compromised my own principles over and over and over. What I was feeling guilty about is the way I'd neglected those children during that period of time because I got obsessed with him. What I was feeling guilty about was the way I was thinking, the kinds of thoughts I was having. What good Eleanor hasn't imagined? I'll talk about a wife and husband, a, a husband's funeral. 
I mean, the best way for them to die is, of course, rescuing somebody from a fire as a hero, where the whole community gathers around and praises the family for having chosen this wonderful man to be. And then you have the funeral with everybody coming and saying, oh, you poor soul, you've lost this wonderful person, but look what the gift he's left us, his heroism. I mean, what good, Eleanor? Well, I felt guilty about those kinds of thoughts. And I came here and you told me what you think and what you feel have no right or wrong to them at all, only what you do. And, and of course, that's scattered throughout our literature all over the place. And I learned that here. But, you see, I had to start doing something about those things I was feeling guilty about. I began becoming a responsible mother, and I learned that with the Twelfth Tradition, which talks about principles of a personality. Um, that 14-year-old daughter who screamed, I hate you, and was out there in the streets doing things that were terrible. I was always given in to her because she got the worst of it from her dad because she had the biggest mouth. She asked for it. And she got it back. And so I was always balancing the scales. I was always going to make it okay for her because it was so awful over here. Well, what she ended up with was two irresponsible parents. One who was giving her too much and one who was making it too easy on her. I came back from a meeting, a service meeting actually of Al-Anon, where the 12th tradition had been involved and I recognized what that principle meant. And I went home and Jan wanted to do something she shouldn't do at her age. And I told her she couldn't do that and she screamed, I hate you, at me. And I said, Jan... It's more important for me to like me than it is for you to like me. And I knew I was going to get to be a responsible mother again. She says today, she's 30 years old today, she says, you know, I knew things were going to be different in that house. (laughs) So did I, but a little differently than she thought. I began recognizing what a martyr I had been. And looking into why I was like that. We have some wonderful answers for that in our literature. What did I need so badly that I had to sacrifice like that? And I began learning the ways to do the kind of things for people, if you will, that are healthy instead of unhealthy. I got to thinking I must be a really sick person, that all I want to do is help the world. I mean, that's sick. Today I know that's not sick at all if it's done in a healthy way. If it's done where it doesn't harm me. It's not unhealthy at all. It's a fine thing to do. Thank goodness for that, because you see, I decided to go back to college. I want to say that we have over 15 years in our house where no booze has been consumed. I mean, no booze in the house. The Cliff has not had a drink in over 15 years. And that's something that I, of course, am extremely grateful for. What a miracle. And what a gift. I also need to say that sobriety has been very, very difficult for me at times. A lot of it because I've had to face myself and couldn't blame that drinking anymore. Some of it because Cliff's had his own struggles with the program, which he'll probably tell you about. Um, and God's given me some ways to grow that I frankly wouldn't have chosen. Some of them I could have done without. At five years in this program, and I talk about my sobriety too because the dictionary defines sobriety as sane and rational thinking. It doesn't say a word about booze, alcohol, and uh, so I look upon myself as, I, I have a few slips, <laughs> you might have guessed that already, but... Uh, I try to look at myself and my growth and call it sobriety. And at about five years, I went into a terrible depression. It lasted for three years and it went undiagnosed. Nobody knew what it was. They weren't calling it that. I lost the ability to function. The only, I had two children left at home and that daughter that was the lost child was 12. And I reached a point in my, I was doing everything I knew to in the program. Uh, I couldn't imagine, I didn't know what else to do. I was sick all the time. I was in bed most of the time. And I went to the wrong kinds of doctors. I was afraid to take pills because uh, there was a, a pill abuse going on in my life. People in my life did that, and I didn't think that was probably a good thing. And I didn't take some. I should have because of all that. 
and eventually that got diagnosed after three years. So while I was in that, just towards the end of it, I was ready to take my own life. Today I work with kids who are disturbed, and that's a result of my working with Alateen. I work in a child abuse treatment center as a counselor. And um, I was just talking to Cliff about it. We had a kid take it over, try to overdose the other night, and um, that does happen. And this teenager, and um, but he sent out a lot of messages first, and everybody was kind of prepared for it, so to speak. And I said, you know, I know that if somebody like me, I would not have told a person in the world if I was going to take my life. This is just my way, because I wouldn't want you to know I wanted to accomplish it. But I had a 12-year-old, that I didn't want to do that to her, because that got done to me by my mother. And I didn't know if she could handle it the way I had because she wasn't going to Al-Anon or Alateen, and I had you when it happened to me, and she didn't have that. Thank God for that child, that child that when I was pregnant with her, that fifth child, I thought, God, what are you doing to me, giving me another child, pregnant again with this drunk husband and all these crazy children, and now you're giving me another responsibility. She's the one who was responsible, in my mind, for my staying alive long enough to be taken to the right kind of medical care and get taken care of. Then I got to serve as delegate from California to New York, which is where I met Maxine. And I intended to go back to school, but I couldn't do all those things. I didn't have the energy. I tried um, tried going to school and being delegate and giving my piano lessons. And of course, they had slimmed down a little, and I was it was a little less hectic around there, and quite so embarrassing to be trying to be dignified in the midst of that. As you can imagine, Cliff was participating in my recitals and and uh, coming through the room and praising the kids. What a joy! He began enjoying the piano lessons and listening to them himself and giving the kids feedback, and and it was fun having him be part of that. Um, the time came and I finished my job as delegate and decided to go back to school again and I did that and I got that degree that I had not gotten because I had become so obsessed with this alcoholic and with my uh, need to have fun that I had never done that um, it was an awful struggle for me it was very very hard it's hard enough when you're when the other students are all older than you but when the teachers are older too you know I mean that gets a little strange and some of the classes got kind of humorous uh, in physiological psychology when they're teaching me uh, the uh, damage to the brain and some of the symptoms of alcoholism and I think that and how it affects a person's sexual functions I thought they really ought to be more interested in how alcohol in a person affects the spouse's sexual functions or <laughs> dysfunctions as the case may be <laughs> and uh, they didn't want to hear all that um, but I managed to get that degree and it was because of Al-Anon and your support and help during that because it was hard I quit teaching piano there wasn't money uh, it was hard for Cliff when I went back to school. He would kind of rather I'd gone to work and, you know, earn more money. But today he's fine with that and supportive of what I do. But because of you, because you gave me ongoing the courage to no matter what, do what I felt I needed to do, I was able to do that. And then I decided to go back and get a graduate degree and to go into the line of work that I wanted. That has to do with Alateens because back when I was sponsoring Alateen groups a bunch of years ago, some of those kids were experiencing molestation and incest in their homes. That's happening today everywhere, and, and there's a lot more said about that. And I was lost, and I didn't know how to help these kids. There wasn't a lot of stuff written, and, and, I, and I was always confused about who to turn to. And because of my experience with that and with those wonderful, wonderful Alateens, those honest kids that tell it like it is, um, I've been able to walk through some other doors because that's what I wanted to do. And today I have a job I couldn't ask for anything better. It's exactly where I want to be. It's part-time with, 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 I want that because I get to come up here to places like this and have fun with people like you. I get to, to work with these kids that have come from families somewhat like ours sometimes. Um, the whole child use treatment center is, uh, does a lot more than that. Uh, I get to be the kind of mother, in a sense, that I didn't let myself be when they were growing up, but because of you, I don't have to hook into that and, 
and carry it with me day and night and wallow in worry and take on any more. That I couldn't do that without Al-Anon. There's no way. You've given me so many gifts that it's it's endless, and uh, and I know that most of you feel the same way. On and on and on goes the list of the kinds of doors that have opened that you've given me the courage to walk through. Ernest Hemingway says that the world breaks all of us, but that some of us become stronger in the broken places. That's what you've given me. Alcoholism broke me, and I've become stronger in those broken places. Those things that I resented so much today I can laugh at. I love alcoholics, especially alcoholic women. I don't identify. I get feelings of impending joy, which drives a lot of alcoholics up the wall. I still try to cheer you up, and that can be dangerous. Like five alcoholics and me on the freeway in a traffic jam, and my deciding that it's a time to be cheerful, and we've all been giving a, given a gift of time. Five alcoholics don't appreciate being sober, being told that when they're in a traffic jam in Los Angeles. And uh, they, but you know, they tolerate me. You all tolerate me. You still let me help you a little bit, but Al-Anon keeps me from helping people too much. There's no way I can ever repay, ever repay the gifts that Al-Anon and A, the gifts that you've given me. And I thank you for that. Thank you.